conversation uh, on the TYT Network. Uh, we've been telling you a little bit about this show on uh, Netflix. It's a series called The Innocence Files. Uh, well, part of the reason we're telling you is because it's such a great match for what we do on The Young Turks, which is to seek out injustice and try to correct it. And boy, we got a doozy of an injustice story today. So uh, joining me now is Sarah Dowland, who directed the Million Dollar Man episode in this series of The Innocence Files, and Ken Wynamco, and Ken is the guy who unfortunately suffered that injustice. Uh, so welcome to the show, first of all, guys. Thank you, Jank. Thank you very much, Jank. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no problem. So Sarah, why don't you set up the story, and then I want to get Ken's personal experience on this. Uh, so uh, how did uh, Innocence Files come upon Ken and become convinced that he was innocent? Well, um, uh, when um, Ken was in prison, um, he had seen um, uh, Barry Sheck, one of the co-founders of the Innocence Project, on the Phil Donahue show. And um, that inspired him to write to the Innocence Project to seek help. And at the time, Ken was writing to everyone. He was looking for a lifeline um, and wanting uh, someone to take up his case. And um, at the time, the Innocence Project was inundated. They remain inundated um, with cases. And at that time, they didn't actually have a uh, Innocence Project in Michigan. Um, but what Barry did do was he kept Ken's file. And um, when the Cooley Innocence Project did open, um, Barry suggested that they look at Ken's case and so that was the first one that they actually picked up and looked at and started to, um, you know, look at the evidence of the case and, and became convinced that there, there, there was a, a probable cause, probable reason that um, Ken was, was likely to be innocent. So, Ken, in this case, it's a terrible, brutal rape uh, that happened uh, and they pinned it on you. Um, and and now we know definitively, uh, based on DNA evidence, it wasn't you. So, uh, you know, spoiler alert, I hate to ruin the, the series on Netflix, but uh, Ken <laughs> didn't do it. Uh, so, uh, Ken, when they first came to pin it on you, what was your reaction? Like, because you hadn't done this at all. So were you just like, my God, what the hell is going on here? That's exactly what I asked the detectives when they came to my house to arrest me. And first, I want to point out, Jenk, that um, they came to arrest me 10 weeks after the rape occurred. Um, I remember reading about the, about the incident in the Detroit News, Detroit Free Press, and the Macomb Daily, which was a local paper um, in Macomb County. And, uh, you know, I thought it sounded like a horrible crime. And there's no doubt that it was. It really was. But I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know who this woman was. And um, a lot of times people ask me, well, why did they come after me? Okay. Yeah. I, was never, I was never in trouble before. It's a logical question. And uh, the only logical answer that's out there is about six months before, prior to the rape, I, I was managing a set of bowling alleys in, in Macomb County, Clinton Township, Michigan. And there was, uh, it was, we had a family night and Friday night, the, um, the place was packed. Uh, parents bring their children to bowl. 
And I was, um, I was sitting in my office putting together a liquor order. And Kelly, one of my waitresses, came into the office to tell me that there was a guy. She was worried that a fight was going to break out in lane 12 because there was a, a guy bowling by himself. She said that she thought he was drunk. And she noticed that he was drinking cans of Miller Lite beer. Okay. And he had two bowling bags. And she noticed that in one of the bags, he had several cans of, of Miller Lite. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go, uh, I'll take a look at it and see what's going on. So stepped out of my office and any, t if there's ever a problem in a bowling alley, I always take my time to look at the, look at the situation to assess this, you know, what's, what's going on. And, you know, as sure as heck, um, this guy was almost got in a fight with the guy and his, uh, one of his kids on lane, lane 11. And I noticed that he reached, he saw him reaching his bag to, and he pulled out a can of Miller Lite. So <clears throat> I told Terry, the counter man, I said, you know, watch my back because I'm going to go down and, you know, I'm going to ask this guy to leave. So I went down. I was very polite. I went down to the, um, to the gentleman. His name was John. I said, and I asked him, I said, John, I said, do these two bowling bags belong to you? He says, uh, why? What's, what's, what's the matter to you? I said, and what's your name? I said, my name is Kenny. I'm the general manager of, you know, of, of this place. And uh, he said, no. I said, go, you want to look? Go ahead. So I, I looked in the bag and I pulled out a can of Miller Lite. And he had, he was wearing a pair, pair of, he rented, rented a pair of our bowling shoes from the bowling center. And I said, John, um, I said, take your shoes off. You're, on, you're all done bowling for the night. You're going to have to leave. And uh, he says, why? I'm not going anywhere. Why, you know, why, why do I have to leave? I said, because. You you have this beer, there's 11 cans or 12 cans of Miller Lite in his bowling bag. I said, you can't bring beer into an establishment that has a liquor license. You're jeopardizing my business, okay? And God forbid if he would go out, and he was drunk, I could tell that right from as soon as I got close to him. Um, I said, God forbid you go out and get an, get an accident and kill somebody, they're going to come after me. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, well, he says, I bought these beers here. You can't throw me out. I said, John, I said, don't lie to me, okay? And I, I hate to argue with anyone, mm -hmm. but you, you did not buy these beers here. He said, yes, I did. And you can't prove otherwise. I said, yes, I can prove otherwise because we don't sell, all, all the beer we sell, we sell bottled beer. We don't sell any canned beer whatsoever. So I know you didn't buy that beer here. So I said, uh, take your shoes off, go up to the counter and pay your, you know, pay your bill. And I grabbed the bag of uh, a bowling bag that had the beer, and I took it with me in my office. He said, where are you going with that? I said, that's mine. I said, no, he said, come back and see me tomorrow, okay, when you're sober. So I went back, uh, went to the office, started working on my liquor order again, and he came back in. He came in the office, and he says, I want my beer back. I said, John, I told you to come back and see me tomorrow. I'm, I'm real busy right now, and I don't want to argue. And I said, you know, you get, you get, do yourself a favor and, you know, have a good night. And he says, uh, well, you, I, you know, he's, he's not going anywhere. He can't, and, I, and I can't throw him out. And I said, well, you're wrong about that, John. I know my rights are. I've been in the business for 25 years. I know what I, what I can and I can't do. And um, I said, but, you know, just out of curiosity, why do you think I can't throw you out? And he pulled, when his pocket pulled out a badge, it was a Clinton Township police officer's badge. Because mm -hmm. I'm a police officer. I said, well, first of all, John, I don't know if that badge is real or not. I said, but if it is real, 
And if you are a police officer, you know better than to bring, you can't bring alcohol into an establishment that has a liquor license. It's plain and simple. That's the law. Okay. So he's, I'm not leaving until he, uh, he gets a beer back. I says, John, look it, one way or another, you're leaving. You can you walk out or I'm going to throw you out. It's that simple. Yeah. So um, he, he went to grab for his beer and I, I got up and I got him in a headlock and he was still holding on. He had one of the, the bowling bags, bowling bag with his two balls in it, was still in his left hand. So I got him in a headlock and I was dragging, dragging him out outside and I have two double glass doors on the way going to the parking lot. And when I was dragging him outside, he took the, the bag with his bowling balls in it and he shattered the glass on one of the glass doors. So I got him outside, threw him on the ground in the parking lot. It was snowing that day real bad. I, I said, John, come back and see me tomorrow. I went back in the office and um, I went back to work on my liquor order. Well, about 20 minutes later, Terry, the counterman, came in the office again. There's two police officers here that want to see him. Two uniform officers. So they walked in the, um, they came in the office. And I said, what can I do for you guys? He says, one of the officers says, is your name Kenny? I said, yes, it is. Says, What's the problem? And his partner says, well, I understand you had a problem here about a half hour ago. And I said, I didn't have any problem. He said, well, I noticed one of your porters is out by the front door sweeping up glass because one of the you know, glass was shattered in one of my doors. I said, that, you know, um, I, said, I had to throw somebody out, okay? He said, I thought you said you didn't have a problem. I said, I didn't have a problem. He had a problem because he didn't want to listen to me, you know? So they, uh, they were, one of the guys kept on, one of the cops kept on walking around looking, you know, looking at the, out of the crowd, and his partner asked me if my liquor license was up to date. I said, yes, it is. He said, where's it at? I said, it's posted on a back wall behind a bar where the law says it's supposed to be, okay? He said, can I take a look at it? I said, sure, help yourself. So we walked into the bar, and the bar was packed that night. So he got in the bar, and he started to walk behind the bar himself. I said, excuse me, officer. I said, what, you know, what do you think you're doing? He said, I'm going to check your liquor license. I said, I have one rule, major rule in this business. The only people that are allowed behind the bar are the, the bartenders on duty or myself. That's the what those are the rules. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, you know, I can't easily, you're real smart ass, aren't you? I said, no, I'm just protecting my business. I'm telling you how, how we run things here. So I took the license off the wall, brought it, showed it to him. They started walking around inside the bar, looking at people. And uh, they came back up to me. He says, okay, he says, well, you know, well, you have a nice night and, uh, well, you know, come to five or six months, you know, we'll come down and make sure that everything is, is you're okay. And I said, is that some kind of a threat? You know, he said, and his party said, no, we don't make threat. We make, we keep promises. And lo and behold, they walked out five and a half months later, I get arrested for this BEM robbery and rape. Jesus Christ. Okay. So Sarah, uh, as you're directing this and you see the evidence, uh, What's the number one piece of evidence that convinces you that Ken didn't do it? <laughs> that, that, that he was already uh, declared innocent when I met him. Um, but I think that... No, I'm the, saying it as you look at the case overall, right. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there was plenty of uh, DNA evidence um, uh, that, that cleared Ken. Um, but I think even, even before that testing, there were really big red flags um, you know, those were that the victim was blindfolded during the attack. The attacker um, who committed the assault and the robbery and break-in, he was masked. 
Um, the victim was encouraged to provide the police with a sketch drawing, which she said was only 60% accurate because she really didn't get an opportunity to see the person. Um, there were footprints that didn't mat match Ken's shoe size. There were cigarette butts Ken at, at, at the house. Um, Ken didn't smoke at that time. Um, so there, there were definitely, you know, big red flags that said that Ken didn't do this. Also in the description that the victim did give, um, uh, that didn't match Ken's description either. So um, there were a lot of things that just didn't line up. And I think that really, you know, led me to question, well, what were they doing here and why did they have to build a case around circumstantial evidence when there was physical evidence that they could test and there was, even if you were looking at the circumstantial evidence, there were plenty of things that ruled Ken out. Um, but it very much read like a case of confirmation bias to me that they had decided that Ken was guilty and then they went around and found the pieces of circumstantial evidence that could support that, you know, hypothesis. Yeah. Sarah, as a, you know, as we go through these Innocence Files interviews, uh, and, and I've interviewed many people from the Innocence Project throughout the years, even before the Netflix show, uh, the one thing that screams out uh, and is really depressing um, fact about humanity is how little uh, some cops and some prosecutors care about justice, that they're willing to throw away someone's life. Um, because I, I, I read the evidence on it. Uh, the guy was masked. Uh, she barely got a look at him through her blindfolds. And he had one of those nylon stockings on, so the face is completely distorted. Uh, she says she wasn't sure at all. Uh, and and I just, it's kind of an existential question, but how do prosecutors and cops do this uh, and, and live with themselves? And how often does this happen? Well, what I what I learned from talking with Carl Malinga, who was the um, the county prosecutor at the time, um, and and uh, Linda Davis's boss, um, is that the culture can be for some prosecutors about winning, and there is a political component to their job, especially if they are seeking higher office. Um, which the prosecutor in Ken's case, Linda Davis, was. She, she eventually did run against her boss, Karma Linga. Um, and so to do that, they often look for support from the, from the police um, to be seen as being tough on crime. Um, you know, I can also understand that in a case like this, where the victim has been severely traumatised, that there is a lot of pressure to... Um, find the person responsible and there's a lot of public pressure in terms of ensuring safety but in this instance really no one is served and you could argue that the the the, the pain is is certainly doubled um, if not you know trebled um, in terms of that the 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 real perpetrator was re remained free and was able to then and did commit other crimes um, during the whole time that Kim was falsely imprisoned. The victim doesn't get true justice for the for the perpetrator because the wrong person is serving time and and now they have to reckon with 
um, you know, all the emotions that, that would go along with that. And, of course, Kent, who this whole episode is about, and his family and the, 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 the burdens that he has to carry with him for the rest of his life, how this affected his parents, um, the relationships with his siblings and, and his own children. Um, you know, it, it's, it's impossible to quantify um, the devastation that it, that it creates getting this wrong. Sarah, real quick, uh, did they ever find the perpetrator? They did. They, they, they found Gosner. They, they, they got a DNA match um, when they entered, entered uh, you know, the DNA into the system. And, uh, you know, he, he had a long track record. Um, and, you know, if, if he had have actually been pursued um, or if the, the DNA that they had at the time had have been pursued, they maybe would have actually been able to find him much earlier and saved a lot of pain and hardship. Yeah. You know, Jenk, if, yeah. I can, if I can add a little bit to your question, um, you mentioned how can pr police or prosecutors live with themselves, okay? Uh, I want to say, first of all, I still believe to this day most police officers are good. I honestly believe that. However, there, there is a small percentage of police detectives and as well as prosecutors who don't, they just, they just don't have a conscience at all. They don't care, as, as uh, Sarah pointed out, you know, about the truth at all. They're looking to make an advancement in their, in their career, okay? And, uh, you know, as Sarah pointed out very well that, you know, the perpetrator was masked, the victim was masked. She said she never saw the guy's face, yet the police come up with this composite, miraculously, okay? And, um, the real rapist, Craig Gonzo, was, was later identified thanks to one of the laws that I had passed in Michigan that now requires any inmate that's in a Michigan prison, they have to give a DNA swab. It goes into the Dakota system to look for a hit. That's how they caught Gonzo. Now, the shocking thing is, uh, to me anyhow, at the time of the crime, I was five foot ten, 185 pounds. I'm not that far off even to this day. Gonzer, at the time of the rape, was six foot six, uh, 340 pounds. Okay, so they were only 10 inches off on height, 105 pounds off on, on weight. That's what, you know, anybody that says that wasn't, they, the police knew they had the wrong man. They really believed it. They knew so, that. So, Ken, uh, was there ever any consequences for those particular cops or you prosecutor? Know, yeah, uh, you know what the consequences were? And this is one thing I'm going to fight for to the day I die. They knowingly put an innocent man in prison. The consequences that they suffered were they all got promoted. Uh, I was now, sure. Does that make any? Does that make sense to anyone, any decent person? No way. And that's, I've, I've been saying all along, and I'll fight to the day I die, unless there are consequences against people like pro dishonest prosecutors, dishonest police officers, dishonest judges, if, if they, and these people swear they take an oath to uphold the law, when they deliberately break the law, there must be consequences. Otherwise, these wrongful convictions will keep on going. 
Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. Sarah, yeah. did, did the prosecutor wind up becoming a judge? She did. Um, yes. So, so she, uh, she also, I guess, got her promotion. Um, she recently uh, stepped down from that position um, to, to work on um, uh, uh, like an anti-drugs um, uh, campaign. Yeah. So she's, uh, she has since moved on. Um, right. And, you know, it, it would have been great to have had an opportunity to interview her about it. But, you know, we had those fantastic tapes that we were able to um, get a hold of. And I think that those, those tapes do an excellent job of really representing the mindset of the prosecutor and the police at that time. That even though Ken was sitting there uh, during all of those depositions and, um, you know, that they, they were facing, you know, the innocent man that they had put away, they were very much all in unison, in denial that they had done anything wrong. So, Ken, we got about a minute left. So let me just ask a couple of quick uh, questions. Uh, so the cops that, that wound up arresting you, uh, were they different than the ones that showed up at your bowling alley? Yeah, the, the ones that arrested me were detectives, police detectives. Uh, the ones that came, well, I, get, I didn't get arrested. They're not the, the officers who came to the bowling alley were uniform officers. I was arrested 10 weeks after the crime itself. Right. I was at I was at home in bed, and uh, there was a knock on my front door, and I get up to answer the door, and there was a young woman standing on my porch wearing a business suit. I said, "Can I help you?" And she said, "She asked me if my name was Ken." And I said, "Yes, it is. What can I do for you?" Well, when I said my name was Ken, she stepped on the side. Four plainclothes officers rushed me, threw me down on the floor of my living room, handcuffed me behind my back, and told me I was going to be placed in a lineup uh, for this because I was a suspect. Yeah. And it's being arm robbery and rape. That's the last time I saw daylight for 10 years. Yeah, that's, that's the last question I was going to ask you. I don't want to give away too much about the show and what happened at the very end, but how long were you in prison? Nine and a half years. Jesus Christ. All right. Well, Ken, uh, it's great to see you out. Thank you for fighting for justice. And by the way, it should not be undersold what you did, helping to pass that law that actually caught the real criminal in this case. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for pursuing justice in that way. I'm happy that you appreciate it, and I wouldn't want to be doing anything else for the rest of my life, because I know I'm doing the right thing. All right. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Sarah. And Thank everybody, it, this is the Innocence Files series on Netflix. You can watch it right now. And this particular episode is The Million Dollar Man. So th thank you so much for fighting for justice and get at least getting some of it in this case. You're very welcome, Jane. Thanks again for having us. Thanks, Jank. Absolutely.